Hey there, what's going on? Hey, not much. I'm just, uh, I'm ready to get started with another conversation. How about you? Yeah, I am excited. What's on your mind this week? Well, so you know, this last semester that I had, I had a lot of classes around like pastoral leadership, pastoral ministry, some evangelism and missions classes, and uh, it all kind of came together under this uh, question of what exactly is the role of church. And to, to kind of give you some uh, starting point, uh, there are a couple of books in particular that's jump-started my thinking. Um, one of them is Deep and Wide by Andy Stanley, and another was Why Church Matters by uh, Wilson, and then uh, Center Church by Tim Keller. So there was a, a smattering of others, including including Rise of the Nuns, uh, Eugene Peterson's The Pastor, and, and some missions and ministry uh, ones as well. But all of these kind of came together to present me with one big question, and that is, why church? What in the world is church for? And I think it's kind of an interesting question because you are a pastor. You've been uh, I think you you're you have a different title now. What is your title now? It's not executive pastor. No, nope, it's senior associate uh, because I came on to the church that I'm on as executive pastor. And outside of church leaders, when I used that title, everybody thought I was the number one guy in charge, uh, whereas that would be the lead pastor. And so we we changed the title to make sure it was clear that I am the senior staff pastor, but underneath the lead pastor. Okay. That differentiation makes sense. And that's the exact same role you had at your last church. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. I am called to be a number two guy. Uh, I love pushing the spotlight uh, to somebody else and helping somebody else's vision happen. And so, uh, you know, I'm never going to be a lead pastor. I love being a staff pastor who helps a staff grow, helps a staff stay focused, and helps a staff catch the vision. Yeah, I, I love that that's your calling. I think there's a lot more guys out there that have that calling that don't want to uh, admit it because the allure of being the number one is so strong. Uh, but in reality, uh, there's a lot more people called to be a number two, three, four, whatever pastor than there are number ones. Mm -hmm. um, so with your role as a senior associate senior pastor, associate okay, pastor. I'm going to work on that. Yep. And I'm not in church ministry. I am getting an MDiv uh, at seminary because I love pastors and I love uh, speaking the language of a pastor um, and and I love the the Bible knowledge and the theology and the biblical languages and all the things that go into it but what I want to do is ultimately get a counseling degree and work with pastors and church leaders to ensure social emotional spiritual health um, of the leaders and kind of so that they can get back out there and do what it is they're gifted to do um, so we're I'm coming at it from some with some pastoral training, but not a lot of pastoral experience. Uh, you have both the pastoral training and the pastoral experience. And so I sit in the pews. And um, so we have kind of two different perspectives here. So I guess what I'd love to know is from your perspective, what do you see as the role, the purpose, the vision? Like why church? 
Yeah, no, this is interesting. And it's funny that you ask this because I figure no more than 10% of the people who go to church, if that actually sit in my role or in my shoes, 90% of the people who go to church aren't in full-time ministry, right? I mean, I'm in Springfield, Missouri, the home of the Assemblies of God. So in my town, it may be a little bit more than 10%. But you know what I mean? Like, my perspective is the minority perspective on why church. And so be thinking about your answer to this, because I am going to sling this question right back at you, because there aren't a lot of times pastors get to hear from well-educated, well-thought-out parishioners, uh, because on some level, I can default to an answer that nobody else has, which is, I'm going to go to church on Sunday because I have to. (laughs) And so... Right? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, that's my job. Uh, And uh, to be honest, this has always been, uh, and I don't know what other pastors do with this, but when I tell my kids I'm headed to, I actually struggle with how to finish that sentence during the week. Am I headed to work? Am I headed to church? Am I headed to the church building? Am I headed to the office? Am I headed to ministry? I, I actually still, after doing this for 18 years, struggle to fill in the blanks at the end of that sentence with something that I am both emotionally and theologically comfortable with. That has nothing to do with the question you actually asked, but it does lead me into kind of the tension that helps me answer why church. And for me, and certainly I'm not unique in this, I think the contemporary answer to this has been the word mission, right? Like, Uh, The thing that makes the church not a social club is that we are a group of people on a mission together. And if somebody's going to be inspired, because one of the things that I think about all the time is that people are busy, busy, busy. I mean, off the top of your head, give me five things you could be doing on a Sunday morning. Go. Uh, Watching football, sleeping in, having coffee with my wife. Uh, going hiking, uh, taking a trip to the beach. Yeah, absolutely. There's five. Yeah. And you could have probably come up with 50 more, right? You know, you didn't mention kids activities. You didn't mention, uh, working overtime. You didn't mention any kind of hobbies. You didn't mention kind of the practical necessities of like bills and cleaning and all of those kinds of things that have to get wedged into life somewhere. And we're not even at the like hard stage of having like infants and when there's a whole other round of things. So I think about this every Sunday and I'm asking myself, which is the question, I think the way that I ask the why church question is, what is going to make it worth people's time to show up? Because there's 57,000 other things they could be doing, all of which seem absolutely valid, absolutely important. And for a long time, I think the answer that a lot of people gave to why church is the same answer I now can still give, which is because I'm supposed to, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, you grow up in church. And so why do you go to church? Because I'm supposed to. It's the right thing to do. It makes me a good Christian. All of those kinds of things. We have the, I think, the really great opportunity post-pandemic that people have discovered that they don't have to that they're not supposed to, that all of those answers, they survived without going to church for, depending on where you're at, three months to two years. 
they didn't go in person to church. And so now we're forced to ask ourselves a different question, which is to re-ask this why question and to give a real answer. Yeah. And that's what brings me back to this idea of mission, right? Like if I'm not going because I'm supposed to go, I think one major answer that the kind of church that I'm a part of gives is hey, you want purpose in your life. You want to be connected to something bigger than yourself. And if that's what you want, come be a part of the church because we are the kingdom of God on the move. My my church that I'm a part of uses the, the image of an army over and over and over again, uh, saying there's an army rising up from uh, prison yards and college campuses to preach the gospel. And we are... Uh, all giving of ourselves in order to make it possible for people to encounter Jesus for the very first time. And the driving reason, uh, I think, is that it's we're on a mission together and the, you have a valuable part to play in fulfilling that mission. So don't just show up on Sunday, show up and serve on Sunday. Make church better, make it the, uh, an opportunity for someone to be set free, to be healed, to be transformed, to be released from whatever is controlling their lives, to be convicted of their sin, to encounter Jesus for the very first time, whatever it is. Ultimately, I think that's one of the answers, at least, is this idea of mission. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. It does. But I still have my question. And the reason I still have my question, why church, is because the mission can happen and does happen outside of those church walls, right? You have a variety of people that just go and evangelize. And if you talk about prison yards and college campuses in particular, you have uh, prison fellowship and, and prison ministries that go in and work with that population. You have college campus ministries that go in and specifically target that population. So you have these parachurch organizations and you have devoted followers of Christ in other spheres beyond the church that are, quote unquote, on mission. And so to me, mission doesn't fully answer the question, why church? And you know, I was, it was interesting. I was talking with a pastor at my church a few weeks ago, and he was talking about um, the, the stark contrast between before the pandemic and after the pandemic. And uh, it's a pretty, pretty large church. And uh, so before the pandemic, a lot of staff resources and time and attention went to the weekend service. And as soon as we shut down and there was no weekend service, all of that staff time suddenly freed up. They didn't know what to do with themselves because you know you had the worship team that needed to get together and uh, pre-record a set. And so you had a, a video guy, an audio guy, and you had the worship team. And so they did their thing. And then you had whatever, whoever was speaking, they had to record their sermon. Again, you have the audio guy, the video guy, and the preacher. And effectively, that's it. There's no other staff time being devoted to the service. And so if the mission can exist outside the church, and so much of the church's energy goes toward the Sunday morning or Saturday night experience, why? What's the purpose of that time that nothing else can serve? It's good. And I have an answer. I'm curious— 
if you have an answer before I jump into mine, I don't want to give all the answers here. What is your answer for that? I mean, you you go to church at least, you know, once every couple of months. <laughs> um, what's your hey, answer? Who, uh, uh, for the record, he goes to church all the time. Um, at, at least every other month. Um, that's a great question because for years I have been in the pews, right? And so I have been a parishioner and I have not, quote unquote, had to go. And so sometimes I, I have to admit, like it's not as infrequent as you would accuse me, but there are times I don't go to church and I have no good reason why I don't. For years, uh, I've worked night shift and there's a lot of times where I'm just not feeling it because I've worked night shift. Why do I go? Or what draws me to a particular church? I feel like I, despite theological education and any spiritual answer I am required to give in this moment, I feel like I choose a church for many of the same reasons that everybody chooses a church. Is the kids program good? Is there a good youth group? Uh, is the worship good and, and upbeat? And is the band you know, capable of playing music? And does the, the pastor know how to preach? And does he preach a good, theologically rich sermon? And so I look for the Sunday morning experience and how it's going to serve my family. And then mission is secondary. I mean, I don't know if I, I just got kicked out of seminary or not, but mission for my purposes, for why I show up to church, it is often secondary. No, and I think that you're, you know, it was funny, and I, I want to come back to this uh, thing that you just said. You know, you're looking at, are the kids' programs good? Is the youth group solid? I think those are, for anyone who has children, maybe the first question that they ask. I think if if the children are young enough, literally the first question is, is my kid safe? Mm -hmm. And if the answer to that is no, no one's coming back. Yeah, But if 100%. we can get past that, then the question is, is this good for my kids? But so, but I want to push in on that because I think I am, I have an, a different answer from what I was originally going to say that's beginning to form in my mind. But again, I don't want to say it yet because I want to push in a little bit to see if I'm if I'm on the right trail by asking, what does that actually mean? What does it mean? It's good for my kids. What what does that mean for you as a parent? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> I I don't want to offend a bunch of listeners, but is this a crackpot church? Like, are are my kids going to get? Are like, they crazy people? <laughs> yes, are they crazy people? Are my kids going to get quality theological training? Like, uh, and not. You know, do they believe in the five points of Calvinism? Because if they don't, I'm out. You know, it's not that kind of stuff. It's it's actually quite the opposite. It's, hey, are, are my kids going to get exposed to a uh, a nuanced, a rich, a um, open and accessible gospel that um, allows us to major on the majors and minor on the minors? And and then within that, are are we living out? Is is this a church where they live out their faith, and families are uh, genuinely in 
relationship with God. And therefore, their their kids are learning what that means. And they're therefore, you use the word safe, I would say socially, theologically, um, relationally safe people because they're welcoming, they're kind, they they show evidence of the transforming nature of the gospel, and they're they have a to borrow a, a book title, they have a generous orthodoxy that um, conforms to the, uh, the the doctrines of the historic church, but they don't get so rigid on the edges that you know you can't even get a word in edgewise. Yeah, yeah. So I I am. Working as you're talking and as I'm thinking about my answers and your answers, I want to take some of the disparate points that we would say matter to us about church experience or what, why church, what we decide on for, for church, and I want to suggest they're all the same thing. And you tell me if I'm shoehorning this all together, but here's the things we're really looking at. We're looking at whether we want to admit it or not, is the worship good, right? Like, if the worship is awful, that is not a good thing. We're looking at, is the preaching, uh, whatever adjective you want to use, is it biblical, but also is it inspiring or powerful or impactful or meaningful or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as biblical? We're looking at, are the kids' ministries uh, going to be a good place for my kids essentially to get an age-appropriate version of those same experiences, whatever that might mean. You know, like one of the things that was deeply meaningful to me at the last church that I was at was when my kids were learning how to worship in a worship service in kids' church. When it it was, they were actually being slowly and age-appropriately trained how to celebrate the goodness and grace of God through singing. And I thought that was really cool. And it was deeply meaningful to me that our children's pastor at the time focused in on that because I think that's important. But uh, all of this together, I think this is every bit of this from encountering a meaningful children's worker with a smile on their face to a good sermon, a good worship set, somebody smiling at you at the door, feeling welcome, feeling safe. I think all of this adds up together like a group of Legos going together into one sculpture to being, on some level, an encounter with God. I think that's really what's behind all of that. Uh, I think clearly the worship, that's what we're going for. But when I hear a sermon that is powerful, what I really mean is I connected with God through the sermon. Yeah. When I look at what is a kid's program, and I'll tell you, like, as a parent, I connect with God in seeing my kids on a path towards connecting with God. Yeah. Uh, That is a spiritual moment for me. Everything down to the you know bright disneyish colors that churches use to create an environment that allows a kid to feel like it is okay to be a kid and to encounter god at the same time all of this i think and maybe this is the thing that answers your why church question beyond just the mere mission is this idea of encountering god 
that you can't do, you can't be immersed in an encounter with God when it is you and your laptop and a streaming service the way you can when you walk your kids downstairs and somebody smiles at you and welcomes your kid into church. And then you walk in, you see your kid doing something about, you know, Jonah and the whale or non-whale or whatever. And (laughs) then you go upstairs and you are warmly greeted and you go into the service and you're singing a song with whether it's 25 other people or 2,500 other people. And then there's a sermon there. And it's not just that the sermon is being preached. It's that you are encountering the truth with that 25 or 2,500 other people all together. Like there is a sense of corporate encounter that is happening that is immersive when you're at church in a way that it can't be online. So maybe that's my hypothesized answer here is an immersive encounter. I I definitely think we're inching a little closer because an immersive encounter is a piece of being on mission. But I also am feeling like it is more than just an immersive experience. I mean, if I could go to an IMAX theater for an immersive experience, um, I I really like... So one of the... That is why I said encounter rather than experience. I think those are different, but keep going. All right. All right. All right. Fair enough. One of the things that I really liked uh, from Wilson, Why Church Matters, Worship, Ministry, and Mission in Practice by Jonathan R. Wilson. And it it was interesting to read this while reading Deep and Wide by Andy Stanley, because Andy Stanley's book was subtitled Creating uh, a Church That Unchurched People Love to Attend. And so he was emphatic in his book about not creating a church for church people. Wilson, uh, I don't know that he would necessarily disagree, but his emphasis was wildly different. His emphasis was on um, the role of church in teaching a biblical language. And I don't mean Greek or Hebrew, as great as those are, but more the the language of the faith. And so he he suggested that baptism is the initiating uh, rite in the church, that communion is its sustaining rite, and or I, I, I'm saying rite, I, he used the word practice. So baptism being the initiating practice, the uh, communion being the sustaining practice. And then he actually suggested that uh, churches adopt foot washing as another ordinance or command of Jesus, and, um, and that it would be, therefore, the church's guiding practice. And I really liked this model. And so the the language of church, the language of the faith that is taught, communicated, rehearsed, practiced, and internalized through the rhythms of engaging in, you know, even if you go to a low church model, the liturgy, right? The, the common things that we do all the time, that Yes, I guess you could call that immersive, but you could also te- call it, as as Wilson does, teaching the language of the faith that you really only get over time and over constant immersion. Yeah, no, I, I think, okay, one more time, what was his name? Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan Wilson. Sorry, I was trying to jot it down because, uh, like I said, I am 
completely unfamiliar with that book, and I think it's interesting. And I am fully steeped in the Andy Stanley Church for the Unchurched universe. Like that is that is where I live and breathe, and I remind my volunteers of this every Sunday. Every Sunday, I will pull people over and say, how is this going to hit someone who is, it's their first time and they've never been to church before? What about this? Is this going to work for somebody who's never been to church before? That is where I'm at. And so I think it's good for me to hear a different perspective. Though I got to be honest, on the flip side of things, I do not want anyone now or ever to wash my feet. I find that to be <laughs> such an uncomfortable thought. I I just I do no thank you. I just just no thank you. Uh, and I don't know why. I, I mean, I have a very visceral reaction to that. I would just find it very uncomfortable. I would find it very distracting. Uh, but I know that is a complete side point. But so he is really saying. It almost sounds to me like, if and, and correct me where I'm missing it, he's almost saying more is caught than taught, and so you need to be around it for a really, really long time because it's going to rub off on you. I, yeah, you're, you're hearing that in my telling of his book, and I think maybe there might be a part of that, but he's going a little bit deeper than I was presenting it. And he was, um, you know, from a theological perspective, saying, we are the body of Christ. We are the physical representation, this icon of Christ's church uh, right here in the physical space. And so, as such, we represent that kingdom. And so, if we're going to be the church, we have to represent the kingdom of God on earth. And we do that through these practices and through gathering together, and we image Christ to the world in that way. And so we Mm -hmm. are a worshiping community that brings honor and glory to God in all that we do and through these practices and through these rituals and through this language acquisition. And so it is it is on mission, as you say, in terms of uh, imaging God to the world. And so this is where I felt like his book was a little bit lacking because I think he tried to bring something missional into this idea. And I think you can see that in the way he describes being Christ's representatives on earth in this very physical, tangible way and through these practices. But he definitely was creating, in my view, a church for churched people, um, or at the very least, a space that non-churched people can come in and become churched people, become, in essence, really a a part of this body of Christ. Uh, So I don't necessarily disagree with him theologically, maybe in terms of practical application. I, I I think we need to borrow a lot more from Stanley and his design and intentionality around reaching people that are unchurched. But I really like what Wilson brings in terms of what is the point of church itself? 
Why gather together on Sunday mornings? And and it's it's really to live out this language of faith that we've inherited and that we have we have been born into. Yeah. Well, and that rem- this this makes me think two things. Uh, you know, on some level, what what you're calling the body of Christ, another metaphor that I would use, I think, is that we are creating a counterculture. We are seeking to be a society or a citizenry that is living by different norms and therefore living in a different way. And that is only going to happen if we actually get together and create a culture. Like we, we you can't you can't be part of a culture you're not actually in contact with. That that's not a real thing. Does that make sense? Like there's a giant difference about between reading uh about say Chinese culture and going and living in China, right? Those are drastically different things. If the church is the place where the culture of the kingdom of God exists, you have to be in proximity to it in order to be a part of that culture and to let that culture, like I was saying earlier, rub off on you. So part of this means to me, why church? Because it's inconvenient, because so much of my life is shaped around other priorities and values and things that are significant to me, I need to constantly carve out a reminder to myself that I do have a higher priority. The fact that I must make it important is a valid reason to continue to make it important. And you make things important by scheduling them into your life. Coming back to our own friendship here, I would never have spent as much time talking to you if I only talked to you when it was convenient. <laughs> if I only talked to you when I felt like it. Um, you know, if I only talked to you when I wanted to get something out of it. There have been plenty of times when before calling you, I was like, man, I, I'm tired or I have something else on my mind or I have 15 other things I need to get done. But our friendship matters, so I carve out time for it. And I have no regrets about that. Yeah. I, I'm glad to hear you say that because there's sometimes I'm like, I'm so tired or what have you. And I'm, I, I think to myself, boy, maybe he'll forget to call. <laughs> and then you call and I'm like both excited and sad all at the same moment. And then we have a great conversation and it's all fine. Yes. <laughs> yep. Nope. 100%. I've been there. I, there are plenty of times where I'm like, man, I just, I could use this two hours. Yeah. But, <laughs> and it always and is I think two hours. it's the hours. exact same thing with church. Yeah. Well, and it's ironically the exact same amount of time it's church. <laughs> Right. Right. I, I think there is a correlation there. But I want to ask you, unless you have something else you were thinking about about this, one of the things I want to ask you as we're talking about church is I want your perspective from the hooked together cushy chair uh, in the middle of the sanctuary or auditorium or whatever we call it mm-hmm. as the non-staff. And as you're thinking about this question, are there things you wish pastors knew? Are there things you wish pastors were thinking about as they led either the church as a whole? Because, of course, leading church and what church is all about is 
a big chunk of it is Sunday morning, but you know, if if your church is anything like mine, we have programs happening literally every single day of the week. Uh, we have people dropping in and out of the office every single day of the week. But nevertheless, as you think about making ch- answering the question why church for yourself, are there things that you feel like the pastors you've been a part of their churches, do they have blind spots that you notice that maybe they don't? Hmm. I can't believe, I, I've never really thought about that question, but I can't believe the number of answers that came to mind as you were asking the question. So I do not mean to offend anybody by ticking these off, but I've got a list. I, I th- Great. And to be clear, I'm asking not because I think those churches were bad or something. I'm assuming that I have lots of blind spots, and I'm excited to hear your answers because I may be missing some things. Yeah, I'm, I'm picky about the churches that I, I attend, so I, I don't think I've been attending bad churches with bad pastors. I just think I have a lot of things I wish they knew. One of the things I wish they knew is that church is not designed for night shifters. If you work a night shift, I think you should get to go to heaven just by showing up. I, that's just my opinion. It is so hard to get to church, let alone any of the other activities that you think are healthy for me and necessary for my spiritual growth. I can't make it work. I have to sleep sometime and church is not designed for me. So I wish pastors knew that. Uh, I don't know what you would do about it. Um, No, I have a question about this. Does your church dim the lights? Yes. Yes. So like, I had a parishioner who was a night shifter come up to me we have an overflow room that we don't dim the lights in, and she volunteered to be one of the people in who's kind of greeting in the overflow because she said, I'm, I'm a night shifter, and at least if the lights are on, I have a shot. <laughs> but if you put me in that dark room, I'm done. Oh, gosh. I, I have, and I, yeah. I'd never thought about that. I, so this, that's a fascinating point to me. Yeah. I'd say another area that I, I think I wish pastors knew is – is just so I, I I've been going to fairly large churches, and even though I grew okay, up, define large. Uh, we'll say fifteen hundred to two thousand, maybe. Oh wow! Okay, I did not realize they were that big. Okay. Yeah. So I grew up in small churches, like hundred, hundred fifty. I guess so. There's multiple services. Maybe there's like three fifty in attendance on each Sunday, but then you know. People are in and out, so you make it about a fifteen hundred person church. So that's kind of the size that I'm I'm in now. And here's what I wish pastors in in at least that context knew: how hard it is, and maybe especially for me as a night shifter, but how hard it is to actually get plugged in. Yeah. I would love to get plugged in and use my spiritual gifts and all the the wonderful things that pastors say. So two things about me: one was the night shift thing that we've hit. But the other is that I'm I'm a guy that just kind of likes to sit um sit back a little bit and be invited in. If you think that I'm going to just go on the website and uh sign up for some group that I don't even know the people involved and I'm going to get plugged into a small group because I chose a name off of a website, you're sorely mistaken. I would like to meet somebody and I would like to be invited into something. 
so how hard it is to get connected mm. and even like i know you you get up on the on the stage and you ask hey would anybody like to come to men's retreat and you're like well that would be lovely if i knew any men or would you like to come to men's breakfast well i don't know am i just going to be sitting with a bunch of octogenarians uh eating some scrambled eggs and listening to a really bum bummer speaker or am i am i going to get to like meet people but then how big of a group I don't know. It's so No, that's good. It is it's hard to take the initiative to show up. It's hard to take the initiative to find something to plug into something on the website. Um but you know, give me a variety of events, some with smaller groups, some with bigger groups. Create opportunities for me to meet people and don't just expect that I'm going to plug in on my own cuz I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to come, I'm going to show up on Sunday and then I'm going to go back home and that's going to be it. It sounds like you're also saying and create a culture of everybody inviting everybody else to stuff. Because you're far more likely to go if the guy next to you that chatted with you through the service invites you to go than you are if the guy on the pulp at the pulpit invites you to go. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Or I mean, it's so easy for kids to get plugged in, right? They go to Sunday school or they go to youth group and these are social activities and they meet people and they interact. Nothing about the Sunday morning experience is a social experience except the one to two minute quote unquote greeting time that introverts hate. And really it just propagates the opportunity for people that already know each other to talk for a couple minutes and then turn around and listen to the speaker again. Sure. Uh, so there's no there's no social connection. There's no meeting people, building relationships out of which you could be invited to something. Whereas with youth group and and uh, kids church there is. And so maybe if uh, you know the the youth group parents were to meet and connect during youth group or the uh I don't know. Or the parents do that with other parents during children's service. I don't know the actual service is going on during that time, so I don't know. But I hope you see the point. Create opportunities for people of similar station to connect with one another and and build relationships. No, I think that's really valid and super complicated uh, in 90% of church. And one of the things I I didn't hear you say, but that I'm extrapolating that you might mean is it took all my effort just to get here to the church service. I don't have the effort and energy to like get to another thing without a little assistance. Yes. Yes. Or without a clear indication as to why that would be a good thing. Like it's very clear that it would be a good thing if my buddy next to me says, Oh man, I went to this last, last time. It was great. Here's what you can expect. You know, you want to go with me. Sure. No, that's good. And then a third, I'll just leave it at three things I wish pastors knew. The last thing I wish pastors knew was me. I get in a big church, it's not easy to meet everybody. But the guy on stage or the gal on stage, these are the faces I get to know week after week after week. The person sitting next to me in the pew may or may not be the same person week after week after week. If I'm building a relationship with anybody just by attending, I'm building a relationship with the faces and the voices that I hear every single week. I would love to be invited into an opportunity to meet that face. Mm. 
Um, well, it's funny, and this brings me back to something that the, the the church of a generation or two ago did. The church a generation or two ago, the pastor would finish preaching, and where would he go? To the back door and shake everybody's hand on the way out. Yeah. And there may be something wise about that. I mean, I understand that a handshake isn't going to do everything that you're talking about, but at least it expresses an interest. Yes. You know, at least it says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to, and it reminds me of the uh, um, Teddy Roosevelt's, you know, 72 handshakes a minute or whatever he did. He's the fastest handshaker in history. Um, (laughs) But uh, no, again, I think that's great. Uh, and I, I love those answers. I think all three of those are things I'm going to be pulling out and, and applying in a, in a variety of different contexts, uh, even in the way that we create our announcement videos and uh, the way we, there's a couple of different things I think we could do to kind of address some of that a little bit better. Uh, so I think that's some great stuff. I'm so engrossed in this conversation and Honestly, we might have to do like a part two episode on this because I, I think there's so much more to uncover. But in every conversation that you and I have, we always ask for one another's thoughts and just what are you thinking? Unconnected to anything we've talked about today, just what's on your mind? And so I want to make sure we have time for that and that you know maybe we schedule a time to revisit this because this has been really, really good. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it too. Um, so if you're, but if you're interesting, I mean, if you're asking about my thoughts, uh, I was reading uh, a book this week, working, on, continuing to work on a book by uh, Makoto Fujimura, who I've told you a little bit about before. He's a Christian artist, and uh, his writing is fascinating as someone who is in the art universe rather than someone who is purely in the theology universe, and. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting was he made this distinction that I think is interesting, and I don't remember if I've ever told you about this because it's not the first time he mentioned it in the book, but he talks about the difference between what he calls plumbing theology and what he calls making theology. And what he's really getting at is that a lot of our spiritual attempts exist really just, in essence, to fix a plumber. I mean, to fix a problem. So why do you call a plumber in? You call a plumber in because a pipe is broken and you want it to go back to the way it was. Whereas he suggests that our theology shouldn't be aimed at fixing the plumbing, but at, in fact, forging or creating something brand new. We should be envisioning the idea of making as part of our theology uh, as Uh, the idea of a new creation being part of our theology, rather than just trying to fix the old thing. And that idea of being creative as an inherent part of our lived Christian experience, I think is very interesting to me. What about for you? Uh, I know you obviously have been thinking about church, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing you've been thinking about. Do you have other thoughts you wanted to share? Yeah. uh, So, one of my classes has been uh, disconnected from all the others, and it's been a class on the book of Hebrews, and it's been fascinating. But one of the things that the author of Hebrews does that uh, is unique to him is he really emphasizes Jesus as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
And Melchizedek is such an elusive figure in Scripture. He's only mentioned a couple of times. And we have almost no data about who this person was. But clearly, the author of Hebrews seizes on this and demonstrates that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So in other words, he wasn't born a Levite, so he's he can't be a Levitical priest. So how is he in the order of Melchizedek? And what I've one of the things my professor observed, which I just found fascinating, is in Genesis, everybody who is anybody has a genealogy. And um, a buddy of mine and I are actually working through translating the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so we're seeing this as, as uh, the professor is talking about it. That um, these genealogies, these uh, the Hebrew word is toledot, uh, the the record of the families of so and so. These toledots um, are all throughout Genesis, and they they divide major sections of the book, and it is this anchor point for anybody that is anybody. They have a genealogy. They have a, a toledot. Melchizedek, nope, not one bit. He just literally shows up on the scene. Abraham blesses him, or no, he blesses Abraham, and Abraham pays him a tenth, and a, a tithe, and then they, they go on their way. So Abraham acknowledges the superiority, the right to the, the tithe, and receives a blessing from him. So it's very priestly. Uh, and yet, this priest has zero genealogy. He just appears on the scene and then disappears. And the author of Hebrews seizes on this reality and says, uh, see, Jesus is is like that. He is eternal. He is without beginning, without end, seemingly just, or see, seemingly having always existed. And that's the idea. That's almost the flavor you get of Melchizedek. He's just, he has no beginning. He has no end because he has no genealogy. And those genealogies always end with so-and-so did this, and then, and, and he lived this many years, and then he died, right? So you always have this beginning, and you always have this end, but not Melchizedek. And uh, I, I'm fascinated by the way that the author of Hebrews seizes on that. So That's amazing. I actually have wondered about those verses in Hebrews a number of times and tried to understand what they were talking about, about Melchizedek. And I think that idea of he, him being the only major character that doesn't have a genealogy, really implying he's the only character without a pedigree, is that just makes a lot of sense. That's fascinating. But uh, I, I want to turn the conversation now uh, out to everybody else, because we really don't want this to be a conversation just between the two of us. We really want to invite everybody who's listening to us to be a part of the conversation. And there's lots of ways you can do this. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, those kinds of things. We would love to have you share this podcast so that more people can be a part of the conversation. Uh, but the thing I really want to invite you to do is join us on Reddit at r slash on the phone with Josh. And I'm going to be posting some of the questions we talked about today. Why church? What do you wish pastors knew? Those kinds of things, because we would really like to hear your answer to those things. Uh, you have thoughts that we don't have, and we would really love to hear them as we seek to uh, kind of broaden out what we're thinking about about the idea of church. So I really hope you jump on Reddit and share your thoughts with us. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I'm really looking forward to reading uh, what everybody has to say. 
If you're following along on other social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, you know that the question of the week uh, this week was, which Josh has as his all-time favorite breakfast peanut butter toast with scrambled eggs on it? And the answer to that question this week is Josh Konsevich from Missouri. That is your go-to breakfast. It is. I am mildly embarrassed to admit it. But uh, since my grandmother uh, used to watch me when I was like six years old, I have been in too much of a rush to sit still for a meal. And the only way she could uh, get it down my throat was for her to put it together somehow. And so at some point she put together uh, my two pieces of toast, which I, I never liked buttered toast. And so I've always had toast with peanut butter on it. She slapped the egg, this, her scrambled eggs on there, and I have been eating it that way ever since. It <laughs> sounds disgusting, but I promise you can't judge it till you try it. I, I have tried it. It, I, it is fantastic. I would agree with you. See? And you didn't think it was going to be, did you? So I, I'm a peanut butter guy. I, I'll eat peanut butter on a ton of stuff. I put peanut butter on uh, pancakes. So yeah, no. I love I, that. With syrup on it, that is life-changing. It is. It's fantastic. So yeah, no, nothing about this seems odd to me. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, uh, are we on for next week? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, I'll talk to you then, okay? All right. Have a good one. All right. You too. Later. Later.